continue our studies in Luke's Gospel. Um, thanks also to Jim for clearing the car park this morning. I know that Jim was here early this morning working very hard clearing the car park, so we're very appreciative of that. Luke chapter 6, then, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through to 26. <clears throat> I'm going to be thinking today about who the people of God really are and what are they like. Because sometimes when you look at the church, the people that follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you look at them and you think to yourself, are these really God's people? Are these really the people in whom God's spirit dwells? Are these really the people who have been transformed by God? Because sometimes when you look at the church, you look at followers of Jesus Christ, you see people whose lives are broken, who are very needy, who are messed up in many ways. And instead of being a people who've got all their lives together, who are all fixed and perfect, we're so full of needs and brokenness. And a few weeks ago on a Thursday night, we sang the hymn, The Church is One Foundation. And in one of the verses of that hymn, it says about the church that with scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. And as people look on at the church, they wonder, could this really be God's people? Doesn't look like it. They look a bit messed up. It's not a new problem, really. Uh, We might face it in this century, but it's been the problem that churches have faced down through the past 2,000 years. And I wonder how you might have felt if you'd stopped past the church at Corinth in the first century. Paul writes to them in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, have all kinds of problems. And if you'd stopped off there at Corinth and went along to one of their services, you might notice that they had got problems with immorality, idolatry. They'd got problems with false teaching, chaotic worship, um, insensitivity to to the poor and oppressed, all these kinds of things. And after spending some time with them, you might walk away and think to yourself, this Christianity business hasn't really taken off. It's going to flop. These people are seriously messed up. Now, I suspect that Theophilus, to whom Luke is writing this book, might have had similar concerns. I don't know what stage he was in his Christian life, but we do know that Luke writes to reassure him about the things that he has believed. And Luke is then at pains to demonstrate that Jesus is actually the true fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the one that God's people have been looking for. But he's also trying to demonstrate that the church, the people that follow Jesus Christ, really are the people who have been called by God. They really are the true people of God. And in spite of their need and their frailty and their brokenness, they really are the people who inherit God's promises and will reign in the age to come. Now, in previous sections of Luke's gospel, we've seen the real antipathy, the enmity between the Jewish religious leaders and the Lord Jesus. Uh, They're so entrenched in their formal observance of the law that even when the Lord Jesus wants to heal someone on the Sabbath day, they are strictly against that. For them, that would be a breaking of religious rules. And so they're like, no, we're not going to have any of that. And so this would have helped Theophilus to see that actually this divergence of paths between first century Judaism and Christianity was something which started with these Jewish religious leaders who were firmly set in their ways, going in a different path than what the Lord Jesus was actually going on. They had different priorities. And in our section today then, we're going to see what characterizes this new community that gathers around Jesus Christ, that seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it's going to help Theophilus to see that actually God's people, in spite of all their brokenness, in spite of all of their need, are really the people who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. So we're going to read it together from Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And as we approach this passage, we're asking ourselves the question, who really are the people of God? And Luke explains for us in this passage, first of all, that the people of God are an apostolic community built on the foundation of the apostles. He's going to explain that they're a needy community. They come to Jesus because they need the Lord Jesus. And he's going to explain that they're a future-looking community, not basing their values on the present age, but on what is yet to come. And firstly, then, when we, we see the way that the people of God are presented to us here, we see, first of all, that they're an apostolic community. And the Lord Jesus calls these apostles to himself. And what we see here is that they didn't emerge by accident. They didn't emerge by force of personality just because they happened to rise to the top because they were more forceful than the others. Nor did the Lord Jesus just choose them at random and say, yeah, yeah, I'm looking to these 12, they'll do. He chooses them very specifically after prayerful concern. And it's fascinating to see the Lord Jesus here, the model of the perfect human being. And at the brink of this major decision, about who he's going to choose to be as apostles to carry forward the the mission after he has gone back to heaven. He turns to prayer. That's his mode of operation. He turns to prayer. And even though he constantly lived in the presence of God, constantly aware of the presence of God, yet he still thought it necessary at various points throughout his life, to actually spend extended periods of time talking to God. And if we find it strange that 
Jesus, who was himself God, spent time talking to God. We need to remind ourselves that that Jesus, the Son of God, lived his life here on earth as a human being, fully God and fully human. And as a full human being, he lived his life in dependence on God, talking to God. And this is exactly what he does here, ahead of this major decision that's going to affect him, that's going to affect the future of the church. He spends time in prayer. Because who he's going to choose is going to be very significant. And it's worth reminding ourselves that if the Lord Jesus placed so much importance on prayer ahead of the decisions that he made in his own life, then it's vitally important for us who follow the Lord Jesus to actually place great importance in prayer in our own lives. Sometimes we treat prayer as a kind of add-on after we've already made our decisions. We'll christen our decisions by saying, well, I've prayed about it. Uh, We've maybe only made our decision and then just prayed about it for a few seconds. But actually, if we're going to be like the Lord Jesus, then ahead of decisions, we need to take them to the Lord and ask the Lord for wisdom, for guidance. Just as the Lord Jesus spent this, this extended period of time in prayer to his Father, and so we ought to follow in his footsteps. Now, after this night in prayer, the Lord Jesus, he calls the 12 disciples to himself and he designates them as apostles. The word literally means sent ones. They are sent, commissioned by the Lord Jesus. And they're going to represent the Lord Jesus, not only during his time here on earth, when he is amongst them, and they're going out to spread the message throughout Palestine, but they're going to carry forward that mission when he goes back to heaven again. And the fact then that he chooses 12 disciples is really quite significant. Now, some people have suggested that the reason why he chooses 12 is because he wants to suggest he wants to say that he is replacing Israel with this new community after all 12 was the number of the 12 tribes of Israel i don't think he's saying that he is replacing Israel because elsewhere in Luke's gospel and throughout the new testament we're going to see that god still has purposes for ethnic israel the 12 tribes of israel the sons of jacob But nevertheless, the fact that the Lord Jesus chooses 12 is significant, but because what he seems to be suggesting here is that this community that is gathered around him will steward God's promises in this age. That for this time, the people who are gathered around Jesus Christ will be the people of God, this new community that he's creating. And it's important to notice too who he actually chooses to be apostles to lead forward this mission of representing him. He chooses Simon, for example. He's probably one of the best known. And we read in the passage that he is named Peter, Petros, Rock. Now, the Lord Jesus doesn't call him this because of his steadfast personality or or anything like that. Because what we're going to discover is that Peter is actually a very flawed human being. When we get to chapter 22, for example, we see Simon and he, Simon Peter, he declares his undying devotion to the Lord. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Very shortly thereafter, we see Peter put under the pressure and he denies that he knows anything about Jesus. He doesn't know him and doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Nor was that a momentary blip, because even afterwards, after the Lord Jesus has gone back to heaven, and some years afterwards, we read in Galatians chapter 2, that Peter was hypocritical when it came to full Gentile inclusion in the church. 
And at one point, he refused to actually sit down and share meals with the Gentiles and just sat with the Jews. And Paul has to come along and, and confront him with this and bring him back into line. So the fact that Simon is called Peter isn't that Peter is just a really steadfast guy and that God, that the Lord Jesus is choosing him because of his strength of character, as if there's something special about Peter. It's not that. Nor am I trying to slate Peter as if to say that he didn't have any good character qualities, because I'm quite sure he, he did have very good character qualities. But the point I'm trying to make is that Christ's choosing and commissioning of these apostles and his choosing and commissioning, commissioning any disciple isn't based upon who they are. He doesn't come along and say, oh, you've got these great qualities. It's based on his grace. It's based upon his mercy towards us. And Christ's naming of Simon as Peter, as rock, is a sign of Christ's grace, that he is choosing this frail human being and saying that you're going to be a rock in the early church. You're going to be part of the foundation of this early community that's going to gather around me as their head and Lord. Many of the other apostles then are unknown to us. We know bits and pieces, and a lot of legends crop up in the early centuries about who these people are and what they did, and it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. But each was known to Jesus, and each was commissioned to represent the Lord Jesus. Until we get to the last one, where we read about Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We wonder to ourselves, did Jesus not know how this was going to turn out? Was this an accident? Not at all. Uh, the Lord Jesus had prayed about this, and the Lord Jesus was fully aware of how this was going to turn out. Even as early as John chapter 6 and verse 70, we, we see the Lord Jesus being very aware of what's going on, and he says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And he knows from the very beginning that one of the people he has picked is going to betray him. And the idea that, that Jesus was unaware of how things are going to pan out is, I think, an incorrect. And the choosing of Judas then mustn't be understood as a terrible accident, a catastrophe that befell the Lord Jesus, but part of the divine plan whereby Jesus is choosing to follow the path of the suffering and rejected servant of the Lord prophesied about in passages like Psalm chapter 41, where the psalmist says that my own familiar friend, the one I trusted, the one I worshipped with, has lifted up his heel against me, has betrayed me. And so Jesus is deliberately choosing to fulfill scripture by selecting one who's going to be very close to him and yet turn around and betray him. But I think Luke has another reason for telling us that Judas Iscariot was chosen not only to remind us that this was part of the divine plan and that none of this happened by accident, but also to remind somebody like Theophilus that there will always be people amongst the true people of God who have actually got no sincere interest in Jesus Christ, who are prepared to sell the Son of God for a few pieces of silver for their own advancement, for career prospects, for success in the world, whatever it is, they would be willing to give up Jesus just like Judas was. And I think Luke's then saying to somebody like Theophilus, you might look at the church today, you might look at that first century church and think to yourself, is this really the people of God? And you need to recognize that from the very beginning, there were those who had got no sincere interest in Jesus Christ. And that's the way it will always be. And so 
This description of the apostles and why they were chosen has to be understood in the context of the fact that Luke's writing to Theophilus. He's trying to strengthen Theophilus' faith. And so Theophilus is going to be assured that this early Christian community that's gathered around the apostles is the true people of God because the apostles were not just a random uh, group of people that rose through force of personality, but they were commissioned by the Lord himself. And even though there might be false teachers in the church, again, that's nothing new. The Lord Jesus knew that this would be like this. And so he's seeking to strengthen Theophilus' faith. That helps us today as well. We think about what this has to say to us, this choosing of the apostles, and it reminds us that the people of God that we're part of, the church that we're part of, is the apostolic church. In the words of the Nicene Creed that some churches recite, it says that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic in that context means worldwide. It's not divided by sects. It's certainly not talking about the Roman church, which is antithetical to Catholic. But the word that I'm interested there is that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And that means that we are grounded on the foundation of the apostles and what he taught. There is no true church that is not organically connected to the apostles. And that doesn't mean that I think that we need to have an unbroken chain of descent from the apostles. Uh, some people think that to, to call yourself an apostolic church, you need to have an apostle who said, well, I'm going to appoint a successor, and then that successor says, I'm going to appoint a successor. So you've got this unbroken chain of descent, and you say, well, that's why I'm apostolic. The biblical pattern is found in Acts chapter 2, where the characteristic of the early Christians is that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' doctrine, and to the fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Their commitment to the apostolic teaching was what marked them out as an apostolic church. And in the first century, that meant that the Christians listened to the teaching of the apostles as they went throughout the world teaching, and that they listened to the letters that were written by the apostles to the churches. In these days, we have got the New Testament, the written word of the apostles written for us, so that we are people explicitly grounded in the teaching of the New Testament. And that means then that that the true church, those who truly belong to Jesus Christ, must wholeheartedly affirm the teaching of the New Testament. This is what we stand on. This is what Christ has given to us through the apostles. And so at Bensham, we hold not only to the Old Testament, but to the New Testament, the teaching of the apostles, as our definitive, our final guide of faith and practice. And I think that's important to reaffirm because periodically you get people and they say, you know, I'm all in with the teachings of Jesus, but when it comes to what Paul says, when it comes to what Peter says, you know, that's just what they think. And what we see here is that the, the church is grounded on the apostles who are chosen by the Lord Jesus to lead the church forward. And so this isn't a new innovation. And so as part of that apostolic community, we find our identity as part of that people created by the Lord Jesus Christ around him as our head. And so then after the Lord Jesus chooses these apostles, he comes down with them to a level place where a large crowd of Jesus' disciples then meet with him. And we read that people came from all over the country, not only from the Jewish areas, but from Gentile regions like Tyre and Sidon. And they're all coming 
says, look, to hear the Lord Jesus and to be healed by him. And we read that power was coming from him and healing them all. And so this is an incredible scene we've got before us. And you need to try and imagine the sight. They're all trying to touch the Lord Jesus. We've got people gathered around, a large crowd gathered around the Lord Jesus. Some of them have got impure spirits. And if we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see what they're doing. They're probably screaming and shouting, all kinds of chaos from them. We've got people who are sick. Maybe they can't move. Maybe people are carrying them. And they're all clambering to get to Jesus because they know if they just touch Jesus, they're going to be healed. What strikes us then as we look at this very strange scene it's just how broken, how needy all of these people are that come to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't a gathering of people who have got it all together. Obviously, Jesus is healing them. But they're gathering around <coughs> Jesus, and they are very broken and needy people. Jesus then looks at the disciples, and he starts to teach. <clears throat> and in, in Luke's gospel, this is referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. There's a similar account in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5, which is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And Christians down through the ages have often wondered, is this the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount, or is this something different that happened in a different occasion? It's possible that it's been two different occasions. After all, good teachers often repeat what they, they hold to be really important, and so they might say the same kinds of things in slightly different ways to, in order to, t to communicate what they're, what they're teaching. So we, we would expect that the Lord Jesus would repeat himself sometimes. On the other hand, it's possible that Matthew and Luke are recording the same thing from slightly different perspectives. Some people have wondered, well, how can it be a mountain and a plain? Well, it's possible that there was a, a flat area, a level place somewhere on the mountain. And so it's possible then that this is two different angles on the same event. But for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. It's just worth noting that similar passage in Matthew. We're interested in, in what's actually being said. And so the Lord Jesus begins to teach. And he doesn't compare his disciples to this broken, needy crowd and say, be thankful that unlike this lot, you've got it all together. Be thankful that unlike all of their mess, you've got your lives sorted out. No, he highlights how that his disciples are needy, very needy by definition. And he blesses them because they're poor, because they're often hungry, because they weep, and because people are going to reject them. By definition, he's saying, they are a needy people. And when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who hunger now, and so on, it's not saying that by definition, people who are hungry or people who are poor thereby belong to Jesus Christ. There's plenty of people who are poor, who are hungry, who reject Jesus Christ, who have got no interest in Jesus Christ. So we can't just make that, that straightforward connection between two. Rather, what the Lord Jesus is saying is that those who follow him are very often those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are needy in the eyes of the world. Paul himself makes a very similar observation in 1 Corinthians. When he's writing to the Corinthians, he reminds them that not many of you are successful, great people by the world's standards. Many of you are actually foolish by the world's standards. 
And so he says that not many rich, not many noble are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Instead, it's often those who are poor, often those who are hungry, often those who don't have the world's possessions that find themselves called by God to belong to Jesus Christ. And that's where the Lord Jesus comes to them and says that for such, he will provide for them. He will give them what they need. And that is why they are blessed. They experience God's favor, even though they might experience rejection and suffering in the world. And this highlights the other characteristic of God's people. Um, Theophilus, he might look at the early Christians and he might see amongst them many who are poor, many who don't have much by worldly standards. And he might think to themselves, are these really God's people? Is this really the people of the risen king? And he might start to doubt, especially when he compares it to the, the higher social classes that he would have mixed with on occasions because of his role in Roman society. And Luke's reminding him that the people that come to embrace Jesus Christ, who follow Jesus Christ and are blessed by Jesus Christ, are those who are needy. And the Lord blessed those who were needy and came to him. And for us too, we might look at those who form part of the church, perhaps even here, perhaps the broader church, and wonder that for all these people that follow Christ, why are there so many needy, broken people? Why are there so many people whose lives are messed up? Why are there so many people who seem to be attracted to the church, whose lives, to put it mildly, are a bit dysfunctional? Why is the church filled with such kinds of people? Cynical people might sneer and say that actually it's because religion, and especially Christianity, is a crutch for the feeble-minded. It's a psychological aid for people that don't make it in life, and they need something to make them feel good about themselves. But for those who know Jesus Christ, it's because we realize that the Lord Jesus welcomes those in need. We realize that the Lord Jesus is the one who beckons to those who have their problems and come to him because he says that he's going to give them rest. And if we find then that in the church, those who follow Jesus Christ, there is more than its fair share of people that have got difficulties and problems of various kinds. We, we need to realize that it's not so much a sign of the weakness of the church, but it's a sign of the fact that the Lord Jesus welcomes sinners and he eats with sinners as he did in the first century. And it's not to excuse sin. It's certainly not to excuse unrepentant sin. But it is to recognize the fact that the church is a hospital for sick sinners who come to experience the grace of the Lord Jesus. And it's not a museum of masterpieces that are already finished. We wait for the resurrection for that to happen. Each of us then needs to realize that the basis in which we come to the Lord Jesus is because of our need, not because we come to bring something, something special of who we are, but it's because we recognize that Jesus is the only one who can meet our need. And it's the needy who are welcome in the Lord's church. And we must always feel our need of the Lord Jesus, whether it's our material poverty, our social exclusion, our emotional burdens, our sins that weigh us down, whatever it is, these must drive us to the Lord Jesus. 
as we recognize that he welcomes us, he meets with us, and he eats with us. And for all of our burdens now, the Lord will reward us much more in the future. Which brings us to the next point, that the church is not only a needy community, but is also a future-looking community, a group of people that don't have their eyes fixed on the present age, but on the age to come. Jesus says that for those who hunger, they will be satisfied. For those who weep, they will laugh. And for those who are hated, there's a reward in heaven. But he also points out that for those who are rich now, their situation is also going to be reversed. Those who are well-fed, they're going to go hungry. Those who laugh now will mourn. And so the key to understanding this is that in the age to come, there is going to be a great reversal of what is the present situation. And there's going to be a great reversal of the world's values. Those who are complacent and satisfied with the world now will find that there is nothing for them in the future. But those who, who feel their need of God, those who long for the world to come, will be those who will be satisfied in that coming age. And it's to those needy people that God offers the treasures of the world to come. And it's not just the age to come that brings that reversal. It's also something that happens in the present as well. That's why the Lord Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You see, when the Lord Jesus came, he came as the king. He came as the one who was bringing about the kingdom of God, which is what he proclaimed. And he brought the dawn of God's reign in this world. For sure, the best is yet to come. The Lord Jesus hasn't been installed in his, his glory. But already the people of God can know that the kingdom of God belongs to them. That the, that the reign of God has already begun in their lives. God has come to live with them after all. That's the whole point of the Spirit of God. It's all part and parcel of this, this reign of God breaking into the world. And for those who have eyes to see it, they can know that this great reversal which is yet to take place has already started. It is not the rich people of the world that are blessed by God. It's the poor people of the world that can know that they, they, they belong to. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And Jesus then focuses on four things that characterizes this reversal that's going to take place. Firstly, he talks about poverty and riches. Those who are poor not only receive the kingdom of God now, but will receive the kingdom of God in all of its fullness yet to come. But those who are rich have already received their comfort. So we see that followers of Jesus Christ must not seek their comfort here in life, in earthly possessions, or in wealth. Because if we seek to comfort ourselves in this life through what we can accumulate, through padding our lives here down below, then the Lord Jesus makes clear that that is to choose the world over him. It's those who recognize that, that our hopes are laid up with the Lord Jesus at the right hand of God, that we're investing for the future that we're laying up our treasure where moth and rust does not destroy. It's those people that are the true followers of Jesus Christ. And there, there are people that God materially blesses within his church. But even they are called to use, use their resources to, to help those who, who are in need. There is, 
there is no place in the church for those whose preoccupation is to pad their life here down below, for those who aspire to be wealthy here and now, because that's antithetical to what's going to happen in the future. Secondly, Jesus addresses hunger and being well-fed. And he says that those who hunger will be satisfied and those who are well-fed now will go hungry. And for sure, there's a spiritual aspect to this, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. But those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness are often those who are driven to fast and pray and forego even food itself because they are so longing for that day when God will put everything right, longing for God's righteousness to be revealed in this world. And so again, we see that being satisfied in this life, having everything now, is antithetical to preparing for the world to come. You can't have it both ways. Thirdly, the Lord Jesus says that those who weep now will laugh in the age to come, and those who laugh now will mourn and weep. Because this is the time for mourning. This is the time for looking around the brokenness of our world and weeping because of the destruction and chaos because of sin. Just as the Lord Jesus gathered uh, with friends at the grave of Lazarus and, and wept at the, the awfulness of death and the destruction that sin brings into our world. There are those who imagine that, well, this life is all there is. Therefore, you should enjoy your life to the maximum. Get as much joy out of it now while you can because there's nothing else afterwards. And if you live life like that, then you don't want to be sad now. Everything has to be turned into a cause for celebration. But for those who see that there is an age to come, they realize that they don't have to be always rejoicing now. For sure, Christians do laugh. But it's not that we are so preoccupied with getting our enjoyment here that we must fill every moment with, with happiness and joy because we recognize that ultimately there is a day when our sorrow will be turned to joy and we need to embrace sorrow and sadness in this broken world. And finally, he addresses those who are hated and excluded now because of the Son of Man. And he says that their reward is great in heaven. But for those who are well spoken of, woe to them because that's the way that people spoke about the false prophets. Because those who live for human acclaim now, who want to get all the praise they can now, have lost sight of the fact or have no vision for the fact that ultimately we're not looking for praise now. We're looking for the Lord Jesus to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And it doesn't really matter what people say about us now. But for those who embrace human rejection because of the Son of Man, there is a reward laid out for them. This expression, Son of Man, is interesting. Doubtless the Lord Jesus is thinking about Daniel chapter 7, the glorious Son of Man uh, who comes in splendor uh, to, to receive the kingdom given to him by God. This Son of Man, that's the one we've got our eyes on. That's the one that we, we see ahead of the time what he is going to be in splendor and glory. And we are prepared to embrace rejection for him now. And the Lord says that there's a reward for us. I don't think he's saying uh, anything here about degrees of rewards, although he might say stuff about that elsewhere. I think he's, he's saying that, that following Jesus Christ, embracing rejection, is compensated 
in the world to come by the fact that we are accepted by God. We're embraced by God. We're praised by God. This is by definition what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ because we recognize that this world is disordered in its rejection of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to participate in that disorder, but we bow our knee before Jesus Christ of that, that day when everything will be brought into order and everyone will recognize the worth and value of Jesus Christ. Now, Theophilus, you might have looked at the followers of Jesus Christ, noticed that they were poor, noticed that they were often social outcasts, and that would have been a bit embarrassing for him, given the fact that he's probably got some good Roman status. And he would be wondering, is this really the people of God? Is this really the people that's going to possess the life of the age to come? Is this the people of the risen king? And Luke's reminder to him as he quotes the words of the Lord Jesus is that God's people now live by faith ahead of the great reversal when they will finally be revealed for who they truly are. Now they might not look like much, but there's going to be a reversal when the world's values will be turned on its head. And those who look like the great people now will be seen for their emptiness, their vanity. And those who seem like nobody's now will be seen to be the people of the living God, the people of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how should this shape our thinking as we think about it? Well, we must be people that live in light of the coming of Christ, the new age, who live in light of the inversion of the world's values when everything's going to be turned in its head. And this is very appropriate for us uh, at this time of the year, isn't it? This is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent has traditionally been the season in which Christians long for the coming of Jesus Christ. Advent's word means coming. They remind themselves of the fact that, that for many hundreds of years, God's people longed for the first coming of Christ. And we celebrate that. That's what Advent is about. But Advent is also about longing for the next coming. It's about a season of waiting, of longing, of hope, that this world will one day give way to the new world in which this world's values will be undone and Jesus Christ will reign supreme. And we need to recognize then Yes, at this time of the year, but throughout our lives, we need to recognize that we cannot live our lives for comfort now. We cannot be preoccupied with getting everything here and now. Because if we do that, we are demonstrating that we do not really believe Jesus.